Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. Beginning, we're actually going to begin in verse 15, but I want to make sure we get our context, so I'm going to read beginning in verse 14, and we'll go through verse 17. This is going to be a very interesting passage. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now we went into, in, into depth, not last week because I wasn't here, but the week before, about this, what that looks like, what that means, asking according to His will. I don't want to take all the time today to go back over that. I would encourage you, if you missed it, go over to the cafe in the main building. You can order a CD or a DVD of the message. I'm not sure it's posted online yet. It's on YouTube. Really? The one from two weeks ago. Okay, so you could also go to YouTube and watch it. We haven't been deplatformed yet. That's amazing when you think about it. Because a lot of people have. But anyway, yeah, if you want to learn more about what that looks like, to ask anything according to His will, I think that would be an important teaching for you if you missed it. But now here's where we're going to pick it up today. And if we know that He hears us, and by the way, so what John is teaching us here is that we can approach God with confidence. We don't have to be in that eternal state of, Wondering, doubting, questioning. I wonder if God really hears my prayers. I wonder if He really going to answer my prayers. If we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, and again, you need to dig deeper into this previous few verses from the previous teaching if you haven't done that. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. There's another qualifier, of course. Because God does not, He operates outside the realm of space and time, does He not? For God, it's always right now, right? It's never yesterday or tomorrow. He's eternal. So we offer up a prayer, and if it doesn't get answered by 5 o'clock tonight, we think there's a problem, right? God's not on the job. Or next week, or next month, or next year. I mean, for us, it's an eternity. But for God, eternity is eternity, you see? And so we often forget that, that His promises to answer our prayers don't carry a human timeline. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. And I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. This is going to be fun and interesting. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word today. We ask that you guide and direct us through this passage. Uh, it's one that probably has had many different interpretations, many different understandings. We would like to have yours. That's what we ask for today. Make your truth known to us. Help us to learn, to grow and to go deeper in our relationship with you as a result of this study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. How do we know? Again, I will do a little recapping here. How do we know? We talked about this two weeks ago. Scriptural, biblical, spirit-filled prayers. One model is the Lord's Prayer. I believe that one of the ways we can know 
that he hears us is when we are praying scriptural, biblical, spirit-filled prayers. And what do those look like? Well, often they will have an otherly focus. In other words, our, really our priority should be focused on praying for others, knowing and understanding and believing that when our focus is on others, God takes care of us. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for ourselves, but oftentimes it seems like so much of our prayer lives are self-focused. Otherly focused, godly focused, and spiritually focused prayers. Matthew 9, B, the second half of the verse through 13, is the Lord's Prayer. Let's go through it here. Our Father, so we're focusing on Him, in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. So far this prayer is all about God, right? Your kingdom come. It's still about God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I forget who said it, but it's a pretty profound statement that prayer is not getting our will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. You see? Now it, get, it comes to us. It's okay. Give us this day our daily bread. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that has to do with more than just food. Our daily bread is everything we need for this day, emotionally, spiritually, physically, be our sustenance. In fact, we saw this two weeks ago where Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Do you remember that? Interesting, huh? Give us this day our daily bread, and so we can tie that right into the fact we should be focused on God's will, not ours. Forgive us our debts or our trespasses. It's interesting that uh, some translations call trespasses debts. And it's been said that forgiveness is paying the other person's debt for them. In other words, somehow they have a debt, an obligation with you. They've, they've wronged you in some way. And Jesus paid our debts. The wages of sin is death. So that puts you in the hole financially, doesn't it? Normally, when you think of wages, you think of, well, there's some gain here, some benefit. I'm building up my bank account. But when your wages are death, that kind of puts you in the hole. So Jesus paid that debt for us, the debt that we could never pay. We could never pay for our own sins. So, But this is a model for us in our prayers, not something we should just do rote, verbatim, day in, day out, although there's nothing wrong with praying this prayer every now and then. But it is a model. J. Vernon McGee, instead of calling this the Lord's Prayer, he said it's really the disciples' prayer. Because the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. Don't tell Jesus to do that unless you mean it. If you want him to teach you how to pray, great. And here's a model for it. Starting out with our focus on him. And then going into this part where we ask him to give us our that which we need for the day. Not just food. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And then focusing on our debts. Forgiving, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And again, wow, think about that. What you're telling the Lord is, forgive me to the extent that I'm forgiving others. Is that a little scary? How good are we at forgiving others? Because basically we're telling God... Hey, if I'm not forgiving anybody else, then God, you really don't need to forgive me either. Ouch. Think about it. 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then it ends like it began. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I would say that this is a great example or model of a prayer that in large part is otherly focused, God focused, and spiritually focused. Because if you go on down the page in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 31, again, how much of our prayers are consumed with praying for daily necessities, food, clothing, so forth? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles, or the pagans, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. How many of us spend a good part of our day worrying about tomorrow? Or at least the last thing in the evening before we go to bed. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But notice Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so again, the enemy would love to get us sidetracked and have us focusing a majority of our prayer time and energy on things that God's already said he'll take care of so that we can't pray about the more important things. So all this ties into if we know that he hears us. And so to God, it must sound rather repetitive and redundant when we spend so much time praying about the things that he's already promised to take care of. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious. Boy, anxious, anxiety. Is that possibly the number one problem in our world today? Wow. Wow. And yet God says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, from the biggest thing to the smallest, I tell you, if I lose my keys, I'm praying hard. That might seem like a small thing, a petty thing, but it can ruin your whole day, you know what I mean? Or your wallet. thought I lost my wallet the other day, but it was just a matter of not remembering where I put it. <laughs> so I guess it was lost in a way, but... Uh, and there again, I pray, God, please help me to remember where I put it. Don't be anxious about anything. In fact, when we experience a major traumatic event in our lives, it can be very devastating at the point of impact. But in terms of ongoing impact on our stress level and our anxiety, I would propose to you that quite possibly it's all the little things stacking up that has a greater impact on our stability than the one big traumatic event. Day after day, if we don't deal with these little things that come up every day, that's why Paul writes in Philippians, don't be anxious for anything because one little thing may not be a big deal, but then you have two and you have three and you have four and you have five. Do you know what I'm talking about? And that's how the enemy will go after us. That's his strategy, to try to stack up all those little stressful things until we get to the breaking point. And how are we to deal with it? By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. 
And again, the enemy wants to get us so focused on the negative or what we perceive to be the negative, all the bad things that seem to be going on, when in fact in Christ, how many things work together for good to those who love him? All. So see, negativity for the believer is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the devil because every trial and tribulation that we face in this life can be overcome through Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is that true or no? Don't be anxious about anything because it'll build up on you. It'll stack up on you, that anxiety. And we're seeing that in our world today like never before because people have lost sight of God. They've lost sight of his peace because the next verse, verse 7, says, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise, by the way, from the Lord. If you will do what he's telling you to do, asking you to do, bring everything to him. Oh, I don't want to bother God with that. Really? He cares about every aspect. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Nothing's too big for him. Nothing's too small. And everything that we don't bring to him has the potential to stack up and the enemy will use it against us. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And again, as I started to point out, we need to, to incorporate that element of thanksgiving into our prayers to make a deliberate effort to remember the things that we can be thankful for because the devil will try to tip the scales to the point that you don't think there's anything good. There's nothing to be thankful for. And that's a lie, again, from the pit of hell. But when you take the time in your prayers, when you're talking to God, and that's what it is, a conversation, right? It's supposed to be a conversation between us and God. So conversations usually have two participants at least, right? So we talk, we listen. We talk, we listen. But making a conscious effort to be thankful will remind us that God is working in a positive way in our lives. There have been things in our past that we've conquered with his help. And therefore, there's no reason to believe that we won't conquer these current issues with his help. So, how do we know that he hears us whatever we ask? One, we pray the right kind of prayers, the ones that he tells us to pray, that he teaches us to pray, spiritual, biblical, spirit-filled prayers. Two, I mean, we're human, we're imperfect, we're still sinners saved by grace. When in doubt, again, Jesus is our model. When we're not sure exactly what God's will might be, we can pray and say, not my will, but thine be done, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's our safety net. Charles Ryrie, one of my favorite Bible commentators, if you will. Charles Ryrie calls this a gracious limitation because God's will is always best for his children. Would you agree with that? Father knows best. And so if we know that he hears us whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If our prayers are characterized by the overriding theme of thy will be done, then we can have absolute confidence that we will always get what we ask for 
if we characterize our prayers by that caveat, Lord, this is what I'm praying for. This is what I'm hoping will happen or not happen. But Lord, you see the big picture, and I don't always see the big picture. So Father, if I'm asking amiss, I pray that your will will be done. That's right where we should be with God. That's that safety net. That's that gracious limitation. Now we're going to move on to verse 16. This is where it gets really interesting. This is one long verse with a lot packed into it. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There's more than one way to interpret this, of course. There's the very obvious way, which would be leading to physical death. Now, if your friend gets intoxicated, goes out driving, has an accident, and gets killed, it's really too late to pray for him at that point. If he was a believer, then we hope and pray and trust that based upon the grace of God, he will still go to heaven, but he may have ended his life sooner than he should have, than God would have intended. Uh, some people overdose on drugs. Apparently they're coming very close to having a cure for AIDS, but the whole AIDS thing has to do with behaving in ways that people should not behave. Don't Make no mistake about it, I don't know what the media has tried to convince people of, but the fact of the matter is that disease develop as a result of improper actions. Utilizing your body in the wrong way. And there are other STDs, and some of those can be pretty serious as well. So here's the deal. Whether you are behaving improperly as a non-believer or a believer. Now maybe you're a non-believer and you're practicing a lifestyle that's destructive. And these lifestyles are destructive whether anybody wants to admit it or not. That's, that's just a fact. But then say you, be, you get saved, you become a believer, you repent, you confess your sins, you turn away from that. Well, there's still a possibility that you may... The Bible says, Whatsoever man soweth, that she, that shall he also reap. Galatians chapter 6. You could be saved, you could receive the gift of eternal life and know that you're going to heaven, but you may still die as the consequences of your previous actions, Right? You could be a murderer. You could be on death row. You could get saved. Praise God. Now, some people mock that. The jailhouse conversion, you know. Oh, is it? yeah, sure, now that he's going to die, he receives Christ. Praise God, I say. Right? God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God loves the human race. He sent his son to die for us. And I don't care if you've got one second left to live and you receive Christ. I say, praise God, and I look forward to seeing you in heaven. However, you may still have to pay the price for your activities. And in that case, I mean, it wouldn't be appropriate to pray, Father, I know this guy killed 30 people in a mass shooting, but he's a believer now, so I pray that you would just open those jail cells and help him to escape. You wouldn't pray that, would you? You just pray for a peaceful passing and look forward to seeing him in heaven, right? 
So these are, we're exploring some of the things that John can be talking about here. A sin which does not lead to death. Now some would like to say, well, this means spiritual death. But there's every possibility right up until the moment of death that someone, as we've just discussed, could repent. So I lean more toward this idea, and we'll develop this more as we go along, this idea of a sin which leads to death. It could be a premature death, someone departing before their time, and some of the reasons why that might happen. Know and understand here in these verses 16 and 17, which we haven't read 17, well, we read it at the opening. We read it again right now. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. In the Greek, the word sin here in verses 16 and 17 is plural. It doesn't mean a single act. It implies not a single act, but multiple acts that have the character of sin leading to death. In other words, engaging in one or more sins over a prolonged period of time. And I'm going to give you some graphic illustrations here in a moment. But if anyone, how many of you here today are anyone? Everybody. Sees his brother sending a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he, big H, God. We ask, God will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. That's a big responsibility, folks, that we have. Do you realize that? That if we see someone, a brother or sister, caught up in some type of a sin, God says that our prayers can contribute to them continuing to live, to be here among us, and to have an abundant life in Christ. We have an obligation and a responsibility to pray for those that we are aware of that are involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. And again, without getting frustrated or discouraged, that just because we prayed for them, they haven't changed yet. God's in the business of changing. It's our business to pray. And we have to leave it up to God and His plan and His purposes and His timing and the cooperation of that other person. So he or she, you or I, will ask, and he will give him life. Another translation says, he should pray, or she, and God will give him life. So what should we pray for in that situation? Brokenness, repentance, right? That will result in restoration to God and a return to a life under God's mighty hand of protection. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken or caught or trapped in any trespass or sin, you who are spiritual, oops, <laughs> that means we have to be walking in confession and repentance, brokenness, realizing that the only way we can be spiritual is by yielding ourselves over to the Spirit of God, walking in humility before Him, but then it's like remove the log from your own eye before you take the splinter out of your brother's. But that doesn't mean we should back away and do nothing. Make sure that your heart is right and then restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Listen, buddy, you better shape up or you're going to go straight to hell in a handbasket. 
I don't think that's the way God wants us to approach it, do you? There could be an extreme situation where that might be appropriate. In the book of Jude, he talks about winning some people over gently and others scaring the you-know-what out of them. Some people really have to be awakened. But as a general rule, we're talking about being gentle here. Gentle, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So if we approach this, if we approach it with an attitude of arrogance, superiority, that's not going to work. A spirit of humility. But we do have that responsibility. So a rule of thumb that you could go by, pray for repentance, restore gently. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Oftentimes the first person somebody does is call somebody out. Man, you got to really pray for so-and-so. They really went over the edge this time. I think the Bible calls that gossip. We call it prayer requests. Man, you really need to pray for Pastor Gary. I'm telling you, that guy. Very rarely does anybody come and talk to Pastor Gary. I don't bite. You might be surprised by that. But Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, and again, one or two more gentle, humble, spiritual people so that that person doesn't feel ganged up on. Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Listen, man, we love you, but Jim and Susie over here have basically observed the same thing that I have. We want to help you. We want to resolve this. We, we're, we're, we're on your side. That's the way you would approach it, in my opinion, based upon what I read here in the Scriptures. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Wow. Now see, if, if churches in general were better about following this process, then we'd probably have a better track record in seeing people, relationships mended, healed, restored, healthier church, body. But most churches don't really follow this that well. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And again, the idea is, the goal here is to bring the person to repentance. And so if they don't respond at the lowest level, you take it to the next level and you keep going, hoping at some point they're going to have a prodigal son moment. Come to their senses. I love that. I just, one of my favorite things about the story of the prodigal son is it tells us at the end as he prepares to return to his father, he came to his senses. He was in his right mind. Because when anyone turns their back on God and begins to pursue the things of this world, we've been talking about this lately with just this world we're living in and all the craziness. And I keep thinking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember that guy? He uh, got on the wrong side of God and wound up out in the field with the cows crawling around on all fours and eating grass. You wonder, why are there so many crazy things happening in our world today? And I've told you, I believe we're now living in the age of insanity. Chuck Missler said the age of deception. I think we've gone to the next level. And I know exactly why it's happening. 
Because when you reject God, when you turn your back on God, when you deny God, when every man does that which is right in his own eyes, there is a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death and destruction. Sin makes you crazy, and I mean it in the most literal sense possible. You will go crazy, and that's what's happening in our world today. If you want to be sane, if you want to be in your right mind, if you want to come to your senses, you better get right with God. And you better humble yourself and confess your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So we do have in the Scriptures the last resort. 1 Corinthians 5.5, Paul was dealing with the couple in the church where the guy was living in an uh, incestuous relationship with his what we believe was his stepmother. The church was kind of wishy-washy and just being nice and friendly with them and accepting them. And Paul says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And again, not meaning the physical body, but you know, the works of the flesh are those things that come with, from within our own sinful nature. The lusts and desires and those pursuits of the flesh. The destruction of the flesh, although it can involve some physical discomfort. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the last resort, Paul says. You've got to put this man out of the church. You've got to put him out there on his own without that covering, that hand of protection. So that, you know, he won't listen to me, God says, because God is working through his people. He's working through his leaders, through his apostles like Paul. He said, they're not listening to me. any of us, including God. So we're just going to have to let him go out there and let the devil beat him up a bit. But again, if you look at what the goal is, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's still God's love, his grace, his mercy. He wants to do anything and everything possible to prevent us from spending eternity separated from him. So we move on here in 1 John 5. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Now, so this poses the question, is it possible that a person can come to the point of no return? Again, I used the example earlier of capital crime, where it's punishable by death. But is it possible that a person, and this is very tricky, because only God knows each person's heart, right? And we look at someone, we look at the outward appearance, the outward actions, and we say, oh, wow, that, they, they seem like a believer to me. And there are others who you would say, well, they sure don't seem like a believer to me. But actually, God has the final say in that, right? Here's the problem. It seems like some people want to just walk as close to the edge as they possibly can, right? I don't think that's a good idea, personally. There's a fine line between a believer who continues to live a life of sin. We know that the ideal would be that none, no believer would do that. The ideal is that every one of us, when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, from that moment on we would live an exemplary life, right? We would never do anything wrong again. We would never sin again. Uh, how many can say that that's me? <laughs> I'm not raising my hand, by the way. 
No, that's none of us. But there's a fine line. And again, this is why if someone does make a profession of faith and yet continues to pursue a lifestyle, because what do we say the word sin means in 16 and 17? It's not singular, it's plural. It's an ongoing series of sinful activities that leads to death, according to John. There's a fine line between the believer who continues to live a life of sin and someone who has never known Christ at all. And then it can get really murky when you've got a non-believer over here who seems to be living a more exemplary life than the believer over here, right? And then people will say, well, why should I be a Christian? This guy over here lives a much better life than this person who claims to be a Christian. See how the, the waters get muddied? I would say none of us should ever want to walk that line. But it, apparently, from what John is telling us here, if that believer continues to live that lifestyle, at some point, God may very well take him or her from the earth. I've told the story before. It may have been a while. But my father became a believer in his youth. My grandmother, a very godly woman, took her kids to church, prayed for them, prayed for us grandkids. I believe my very existence is a result of her prayers. My parents tried for five years to have kids with no results. My grandmother continued to pray, lo and behold. You might not believe this, but I'm an answer to prayer. I know that's a little hard to... Maybe a little bit hard to swallow, but I believe it to be true. But, and I don't know, my dad died when I was 12, so I, don't, I haven't had a chance to talk to him about a lot of this stuff like I would like to. But he was in World War II, the military and all that. He was in the construction business. And he spent the better part of his life not following God, even though he was in church, he was in Sunday school, he was in youth group. I'm pretty sure he never stopped believing. And I do believe, from the limited knowledge that I have, a lot of his problem had to do with guilt, condemnation, from the enemy believing that God would never take him back. And it was on his deathbed that through my uncle Fred Cowan that some of you know, we've got a number of pastors in my family. My uncle Fred was probably the first. And there are more to follow. I have several cousins that are pastoring churches today. My uncle Fred came to visit my father in the Veterans Hospital in Long Beach, California a couple of weeks before he died of leukemia, led him back to the Lord, and the, my father spent the last couple of weeks of his life going around the ward witnessing to the other patients. And yet, God did not heal him. He still died. He did have a terminal illness. And I've always suspected that perhaps God took him at that moment when he was once again right with the Lord before he had another opportunity to fall away. That would be God's grace, wouldn't it? Perhaps God knew that my father would not be able to live that life were he given another opportunity to be healed from that terminal illness. Now, interestingly, my mother died five years later. The last thing that my father told my mother before he died, he made my mother promise to take uh, the three kids to church every week. And that didn't last too long. 
I always had the sense, even for the very moment of my mother's death, that God was directing my life in a certain path, and he would do whatever it took to get me there. I was never mad at God. I was sad. I'm still sad to this day. I still miss him. I wish I could have known him for longer. I wasn't old enough to really get to know them the way that I could have later on in life. But I never for a moment doubted that God's plan and purpose was perfect. Because as a result, I moved from Scottsdale, Arizona to El Segundo, California and fell uh, neck deep into the Jesus movement. Got my own life right with God and was launched out into ministry, which probably would not have happened had I stayed in Arizona. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was the guy that God used to launch the Calvary Chapel phenomenon. You may not know this. Pastor Chuck Smith was pastoring this small church, Costa Mesa, California. He had kids that were teenagers. And he and his wife, Kay, were praying, how can we reach these young people? We really want to reach the youth. We have kids that are in that age group. One day, I don't remember which one it was, but one of the kids brought this hippie guy home named Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie Frisbee had become a believer. God was beginning to use him in dynamic ways as an evangelist. And Pastor Chuck was the foundation. He was the firm, solid hand behind it. He was the teacher of the word. But Lonnie Frisbee was this young, long-haired hippie guy who was dynamically impacting youth all over Southern California and preaching the gospel. And they began to come in by the hundreds and thousands. Something that came out years later was the fact that Lonnie, prior to his conversion, had at least somewhat of a background in homosexuality. And he, met, he got married, he had kids, the whole nine yards. But as time went on, Lonnie didn't have the same firm foundation in the Word that Pastor Chuck did, and so they ultimately, Chuck continued on with Calvary. Lonnie went off with another group that was not really very solid doctrinally got involved in two or three different groups that were not really solid doctrinally. Gradually, he drifted back into the homosexual lifestyle, and just a few years ago, he died of AIDS. And yet, he was, he was the spear point of the Jesus movement. He died prematurely, before his time, because of an ongoing series of sinful actions. So we have two different examples there, I think. I hope I'm getting through. I hope you're kind of understanding what we're talking about here. And we read this morning in the communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11 how Paul said that some people had gotten sick and some had even died because they had not rightly discerned the body and the blood of the Lord. Now again, we could start getting, you know, really getting into some deep water here and say, well, how come it happens to some people and others? I don't know. That's God's business. All I know is the scriptures have given us ample warning that we should not presume upon the grace of God. We should not take it lightly. That God takes all this stuff very seriously. And again, for those who reject Him, the ultimate, we'd like to see them toasted now. That's not how it works. How come they. Look how good they're... Somebody just said this again the other day. It reminded me of the book of Malachi, at the end of Malachi, where these people are saying, what good does it do to serve God? You ever read that? Go to the end of the book of Malachi and read where 
God's people are saying, what good does it do to serve God, man? These guys over here don't serve God, and they're getting all the good stuff. All I do is suffer for Jesus. But here's the deal. Their punishment, their judgment will take place in eternity. That's the one place you don't want it to happen. Because that's forever. They're going to be cast away from the presence of God forever where they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. And it's going to be real hot from what I read in the Bible. Our chastisement, our judgment comes here and now because God wants to keep us on the straight and narrow. Paul says, I'm not saying that he should pray about that, the sin that leads to death, physical death. Paul, John, these men of God, the apostles, their primary focus was on the spiritual, the eternal well-being of the individual rather than the physical. Better to suffer now physically than to suffer forever spiritually. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 5? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 3 John 1, 2 in the King James, he writes, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper. And this is the, the, uh, the faith teachers, the health and wealth teachers, the prosperity teachers love to quote this verse, but they miss the most important part. Thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Prosperity begins with the inner man, the inner woman, the soul, the very essence of who we are, and it emanates outward from there. You can have all the physical, material prosperity in the world, but if your soul is rotten, it's all over. You get it? And again, if a person is already dead, it's too late to pray. If they're in the process of dying as a result of an unrepentant lifestyle, then we should pray for their repentance and their restoration to God. We could pray for their healing, but it may not be His will because it may be a result of their own wrongful actions. We can and should encourage them that God will forgive them and receive them into His presence upon their death if they will truly repent and seek His forgiveness. But we can set them up for, for disappointment, for for bitterness, for resentment. If we say, you know what? Even though you did these things that resulted in your, what's going to lead to your untimely death, God could heal you. Yes, He could. But He very well may not. The important thing is, are you going to be with Him in paradise when you die? That's the whole ballgame. You can live to be 100. You can be the healthiest person that ever came down the pike. But if you go to hell when you die, big deal. Right? Finally, verse 17. We might just run a couple minutes over. All unrighteousness, all wrongdoing is sin. There are no little white lives. Sin is sin. And all sin must be atoned for. And guess what? It has been. Jesus has made atonement for each and every sin that every human being ever has or ever will commit. That's the good news. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And he doesn't even say but, he says and. <laughs> so that you may not sin and if anyone sins. So what he's saying, the goal, the ideal, we don't sin. The reality is we're going to. We have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. 
Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the moment you sin and you realize it, you better go to Jesus and get right with God. There is sin not leading to death. Obviously, people commit sins every day that do not lead to death, at least not immediately. What are the points that John's trying to make here as we close? First of all, believers should not sin. You'd think we knew that already, right? But again, as you look around you, you realize some believers don't seem to get that. As believers, we should not sin. It's bad for your health. It really is. Your mental health, your physical health, sin, if left unchecked, is terminal, right? Secondly, one, believers should not sin, but two, unfortunately, believers do sin. But you know one of the verses that I pray every, every day? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, I live by that verse. I need it. I got to have it. Because we do sin every day. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the other hand, if we as believers choose to live a lifestyle of sin, the result could very well be a premature death. I don't want to be here any longer than God wants me to be here, but I don't want to leave early either. I want His plan to be carried out in my life. How about you? The sin that does not lead to death is the one that's confessed and repented of. As brothers and sisters in Christ, it's our responsibility to hold one another accountable and to pray for each other before that sin becomes terminal. We're all going to die sooner or later, right? Unless we get to go up in the rapture, which is what I'm hoping and praying for, and you probably are too. But why go before our time if we can possibly avoid it? I suspect, and here's another issue that goes beyond this life. Again, yeah, okay, God took me home early, but guess what? I got to go home, so ha-ha. Not quite that simple. I suspect the result of a premature departure will be a degree of shame when we stand before the Lord. Based again on Scripture, folks, I don't just make this stuff up. 1 John 2.28 And now, little children, abide or continue in Him that when He appears, so we're talking about Jesus here, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. We studied that some time back. Again, if you need to go back and reference that, I guess you can do that on YouTube or you can get a CD, a DVD. There's a number of ways to do it. But a premature departure could be connected to a degree of shame when we stand before the Lord. And I'm hoping and praying, I don't want to be ashamed before Him, do you? Again, I'll be glad to get there, but I'd rather get there on good terms rather than to be embarrassed. Again, so it's unfortunately, so many times we presume upon the grace of God. We think because we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, we can just do whatever we want. And the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. And the Bible also teaches that when we live like that, it doesn't go well for us. God wants the best for us. 
I think we do too, right? We want the best. And guess who knows best? The Father knows best. Let's pray. Father God, this is a, quite a deep, dynamic passage. One that we could probably spend a lot more time digging into. There's a lot, there's a lot here, Lord. But I guess the basic understanding would be that there is sin that leads to death and there's sin that doesn't. We know that to be true both physically and spiritually. Actually, all sin leads to spiritual death, but apparently some sin can also lead to physical death. Lord, we don't want to be those who live life on the edge, seeing how close we can walk to the line without stepping over. Lord, that doesn't seem like a real love relationship with you, that we would always be trying to push the envelope, see how much we can get away with, Lord, it seems it would be a lot better if our desire was to obey you, to do your will, to have your will done in our lives, to be in submission to you, to be humble before you, to obey your word, to have the most deep, intimate, loving relationships possible. Lord, because we know it's only limited by us. There are no limits to what you can give us, what you offer us, the depth of your love, your compassion, your grace, your mercy, your understanding. It's only limited by how much we can yield ourselves over to you. So we pray for your help. Lord, we don't want to be motivated by fear. In fact, you, your word tells us that your perfect love casts out all fear. We want to be motivated by our love for you, our desire to please you, our desire to be a good witness and example to those around us. So Father, just help these words that we've looked at today, these scriptures, to sink deeply into our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that you'd continue that ongoing process of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. And as we, as we close now, Lord, we pray for those who need ministry, those who need prayer. Perhaps some need to come for prayer as it relates to the message today, what we've talked about. Others might need prayer for health, for strength, for wisdom, for guidance. We just ask, God, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we sing one more worship song and as we wait upon your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.